politics, music, technology, roller coasters, golf carts, and the greatest country on earth. National Review's new show, the Charles C. W. Cook Podcast, that's me, explores the scenic highways and byways of American political and cultural life. Featuring interviews with leading writers, thinkers, and public figures, every episode offers a fresh perspective on the promises and challenges facing America. Don't miss out. Tune into the Charles C. W. Cook podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Is the media to blame for the concerns over Joe Biden's age and will a President Trump abandon NATO? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry and I'm joined as always by the Right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah Noah Rothman and the notorious M.B.D. Michael Brandon Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors of this episode are full-time, the new book from our friend David Bonson, the How the World Works podcast, and Moink. More about all of them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So before we get started in earnest, let me go to David Bonson's new book. It is deep in the ethos of National Review that work is a bedrock in a flourishing society and that work is a pivotal component in the God-given dignity of every person. Economist and financial manager David Bonson, our friend and colleague, has taken this message to its full potential with his brand new book, Full-Time Work in the Meaning of Life. Whether it be in public policy, in the culture, and even in the church, too often work is seen as a necessary evil and not the universal blessing that it is. David argues in this brand new book for the economic, theological, and ontological significance of work, suggesting that it is core to our identity and that the fastest way to a failed state will be to continue in the current low regard for work that ignores our God-given capacity for productivity. David does not shy away from defending work as a therapeutic, cathartic vehicle for dealing with challenging circumstances in life and ultimately argues that the other things we value in a well-ordered life, marriage, children, community worship, are all enhanced when we properly prioritize and centralize work. It's not a book on work that you've ever read before. Get David Bonson's full-time work in the meaning of life today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever fine books are sold. That's full-time work in the meaning of life. And check out more at fulltimebook.com. That's fulltimebook.com. So MBD, we have the debate still roiling over Joe Biden's age and his mental state. And there's been a, a total freak out on the left, blaming the media for discussing this story, saying the media is going to sink Joe Biden with this bizarre obsession over this issue just the way they did with their bizarre and unwarranted obsession with Hillary Clinton's emails. What do you make of it? Um, they're half right. <laughs> um, they're not right that this is like some kind of obsession of the media. The media is mostly been complicit where it could be in, in telling us that, ah, Joe Biden's just fine. But they're correct in the sense that, you know, if American leaders um, were not expected to be media people, if they entered into like a hidden palace in the Potomac from which all electronic devices were uh, excluded, uh, you know, we would not know how bad Joe Biden is. Like the emperor would be... Uh, hidden away from us and like, you know, Woodrow Wilson practically was a uh, hundred years ago. We would not know. So, I mean, the media is communicating this to us because they're just showing us pictures. They're broadcasting his speeches and he's expected to give them to the media. Um, but yeah, I mean, if this was, you know, if we had a media environment that existed in the early Republic, we would have no idea. And it, this would be covered up. And, um, you know, we'd be voting for him unaware that he was this old. It would just be pure speculation that he was declining in his prowess. Yeah. So, yeah the, 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 word, the, word would, the word would have gotten out even. even no, it, in, yeah. But yeah, yeah, you can see it in front of your eyes. Well, of course. Right. But I mean, it's like, you know, the media communicates it the way the, the wind communicates a fart's presence in a room. Like, I mean, it just. All right, like, and worst worst metaphor ever. 
you, you got just, worst editor's metaphor ever. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying, like it, 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 it. Um, you know, yes, the media is a part of why we are discussing this, and you know, it's going to be frenzy-like because he keeps going out there and saying things that are bizarre, right? Like he just his his level of mental mistakes or senior moments is increasing very rapidly. And you can see it every single day. He misspeaks and not just in the way that, that everyone misspeaks, you know, that, you know, when they say, you know, you know, Moscow instead of, you know, Manhattan or, you know, whatever, you know, they just have a little mental mistake. He is constantly referring to things, you know, to people that died a decade ago as if they're living you know, that's the mistake that people make when they are senile. Yeah, like the 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 Mexico thing was was weird, uh, right? Referring to Egypt as as Mexico. Usually, you do that when it's an alliteration, you know, or the or the the name sounds somewhat similar. That was out of left field, but you know, he got the name of the president right. As some of his defenders, president of Egypt, right? As some of his um, defenders pointed out, but it's yeah, the the long dead foreign leaders, the not knowing the dates, uh, all that is uh, is much more. Concerning. So, Noah, what do you make of the the effort to muddy this issue, or uh, to put it in a less pejorative way, to to point out the problem on the other side as well? Seventy seven year old man is is the presumptive Republican nominee, and he, you know, is, is, doesn't his interviews don't look as sharp as they they did ten years ago uh, by any means, and and he has uh, lots of flubs himself. So that they're they're trying to uh, uh, at least minimize the vulnerability here by by making this you know not a referenda uh referendum on biden's age but but a choice between two old men well that's pretty foolish um to if you're trying to make this a a a choice between two senile men um obviously one is more advanced in that condition than the other it would only highlight joe biden's infirmities my former colleague at Commentary Magazine, Abe Greenwald, has said convincingly enough that it doesn't do Democrats any favors to try to establish this comparison because it's an apples to apples comparison. You have two old men generally in the same stage of life uh, with similar physical profiles, roughly, and one's clearly outperforming the other when it comes to cognition. Uh, so it doesn't do you any any services to suggest, as so many of Joe Biden's defenders have, that all the president needs to do is get out there more. He's got to do extemporaneous interviews. He's got to sit down with 60 minutes. He's got to show them who he really is or rather was. Indeed, sometimes they they indulge the fact that their memories of Joe Biden are not what they are today. And that's just the fact of life. Like they're just as they have this fantasy of of a Joe Biden who doesn't exist anymore, who exists only in memory, just kind of sad and rather wistful. Um, But nevertheless, illustrates the problem. Donald Trump's problem is not cognition. It's not his age as though he, the, he is stumbling on the stage more. He does have his share of senior moments and it would, it doesn't even, it does nobody any favors to paper over that sort of thing. Cause just like Joe Biden, that condition advances, doesn't get better. And Donald Trump's defenders would do well to internalize that. But Donald Trump's deficiency is not that he's senile. It's that he's cultivated this air of unpredictability. His detractors call it crazy. His supporters call it uh, a madman theory as though it's some sort of strategy. Uh, but he doesn't convey uh, to voters who are kind of scared of his instincts that he has any capacity to moderate his his desires, his impulses. That's his detriment. That's his problems. Joe Biden, Joe Biden fans want to make this a contest between two old men and who's older. It's not going to be a contest. Yeah, someone was was pointing out on Twitter, a Biden defender the other day, this interview from years ago where Biden messed up a bunch of stuff. So it's basically the, the he's always been an idiot defense, which some of them are, are rolling out. But there's another clip I saw on Twitter, I think it was 20, 2018, he was asked about his age in a sit-down interview. And he, he just, compared to today, was incredibly sharp in, in talking about this and rebutting these concerns. So Charlie, I, I did a little research for a column I filed yesterday on FDR in 1944. And just the fact of the matter is, when you have a serious, seriously ailing president, the, the track record is White Houses just lie about it, right? Infamously, 
uh, with Wilson, less significantly, but still notably with JFK, who was in really bad shape with Addison's diseases and uh, terrible back condition. I saw yesterday one theory is that um, he, he – uh, got it, Oswald got that third shot in because he he uh, he had a, a brace brace on that that uh, after the he, the first couple shots he couldn't you know slump over in the car because he was artificially held up we didn't know about any of that and then most disgracefully disgracefully FDR I, I think he has a little bit more of an excuse for considering himself an indispensable man than than, than most. Uh, People, given he was ably managing World War II, but he was dying. I mean, his doctor said, basically, you're dying. And they trotted out his doctor in September to say he's fine. You know, he's, he's had this alarming weight loss. It's just because he wanted to shed some, some pounds. He's proud of his flat belly. He's perfectly okay. Truman had a, a lunch with them. And this is another disgraceful thing. FDR basically had no relationship with Truman, didn't tell him anything that was going on when he was in, in imminent risk of of death during this major war. So Truman has a lunch with him, tells reporters, oh, he's always the leader. He's, he's been, he's fit as a fiddle. And then goes back to the Senate office and tells his friend, you know, he's dying. <laughs> yeah, this guy, there's something deeply wrong with him. So there, there's a reason for at the very least a high level of skepticism about what the White House is telling us, let alone what we see with our own eyes. Yeah. This was Robert Hur's sin. He didn't do what everyone else is doing, whether they are a Democrat shill or a member of the press or a White House official. He said what he saw. Reminded me a little bit of when Dasha Burns interviewed John Fetterman and didn't get the memo that she was supposed to come out saying, that man was the greatest intellectual force I've ever encountered. He was reciting Finnegan's Wake from memory. He was doing quadratic equations on the back of an envelope. <laughs> she came out and said, uh, he doesn't really understand anything I'm saying, and he's got machines helping him talk. And, of course, the whole Internet came down and said, how dare you, this is an insult to the disabled. Well, it wasn't. She'd seen what she'd seen, and she said it. I, I think she Robert, said afterwards she was afraid for her career. Sure. Well, Robert, her said what he saw. He interviewed the guy. He asked him a bunch of questions. His job was to look for discrepancies, and he found a great number of them. And he concluded that they weren't malicious. And it's very strange that that's prompted criticism. He's not a doctor. All right, well, he is an investigator. So should we conclude that the many problems with Joe Biden's testimony were willful then? And should he be charged? Pick one. But this is a classic example of what happens when the one guy in the room, or in the case of Dasha Burns, the one girl says, no, I'm not pretending. And then, in his case, submits a report that is published. And from what I understand from Andy McCarthy, was published by Merrick Garland, who had to give it the go-ahead. I cannot describe to you the contempt I feel for the people who are still insisting that Biden is fine. It betrays an extraordinary lack of regard, not only for the truth, but for everyone else in the country. It reminds me of the people on the right who will look you dead in the eye and tell you that Donald Trump is a good Christian family man. And you know he's not. You know he was banging porn stars while his wife was at home with their kid. Don't lie to me. But that's what we're seeing. And you know why we're seeing it? It's because of fear of the consequences. But the time to deal with the consequences of Joe Biden's obvious infirmity, an infirmity that was clear years ago, was last year, was 2022, was after the midterms, perhaps. It's not now. They've made this bed, and they're going to have to lie in it. MBD exit question to you. Percentage odds if Joe Biden is reelected president that Kamala Harris will at some point become president of the United States? Zero. Never going to happen. Joe Biden's make it through those next four years just fine, 100%. It's dead certain that Kamala Harris will be president. I mean, I can't say dead certain. Um uh, you know, there's always a chance that they'll just 
you know, keep it going weekend at Biden's like um, for as long as possible because everyone's job depends on it. Everyone knows Kamala would, you know, eventually come in and clean house. So Joe Biden will be surrounded by people that want to keep it going for as long as possible. Uh, so I would say that, you know, it's just the, it is just the actuarial event that we keep talking about. You know, that's the, whatever that is, whatever that number, the insurance man would hang on him. That's the percentage that Kamala Harris would become president. All right. So I decided on the fly to double barrel this one. So MBD, let's assume, uh, I know you, you think this is not going to happen. It's a 0% chance, but l- let's assume there, there's some determination made by Biden or he's forced by the party or whatever that he's going to get out. What would be the best mechanism for doing it? Or, or, um, Ice let's, say, let's say he's not necessarily getting out or, or there's, or, oh, oh, let's throw it in out as well. So like, so what's that? Cannon. Cannon. Ice floor. <laughs> I'm for an asteroid. <laughs> Ice flow, I love it. So uh, Phil Klein, our colleague, said 25th Amendment, you know, if he's not going to go. Uh, Ross Douthat said, well, right before the convention, this would be exciting, you know, that, that'll be a lot of attention in the convention. And then with under the gun of the pressure of Trump and with not much time left, the party will quickly coalesce around this person. Others say go through the convention and then uh, and, and then the, the party, I guess, can just just pick someone, you know, the DNC. So that's maybe a cleaner process. But if, if, if Biden's going, what in your view would be the best way for him to go? Besides yeah. the, besides the uh, convention. I mean, I, I think Ross is right that, um, the, there is, the, there is an excitement to conventions that have consequences that would be unpredictable and, um, enlivening to our, um, to our process. And I think there is like this, I think we are seeing this constantly expressed longing for politics as it existed. I don't know, pre 2000 or pre the Clinton era. You see, I saw it in that RFK ad during the Super Bowl. Like that was a great ad. um, And, and so I think a live convention would be utterly electric and would be, um, you know, it would, get people really excited over a discrete period of time. And, and that would be All right. beneficial to Democrats. Open convention. So as Dan McLaughlin pointed out, by the way, that the ad portrayed, you know, plausibly RFK is the youthful one since he's 70 years old. <laughs> so no percentage odds Kamala Harris would be president uh, sometime during a Biden second term become president. And what would be the best way for Biden to step aside or get leveraged out? So I've been saying for since Joe Biden's inauguration 2021, because we used to have to talk every day and get on the record with this sort of thing every day, that Joe Biden would be the nominee uh, in 2024, but for two reasons. One, the parties are too weak and they're too beholden to their voters, their primary voters, to execute something uh, like that, something that uh, nullifies their votes and their verdicts. Uh, And for that reason, so I'm going to say about 85% because it would be dependent on a medical event. And for that reason, uh, I would I think the only mechanism to remove Joe Biden from office would be his own resignation. Twenty fifth Amendment is too weak for our current partisan atmosphere. Uh, the uh, the idea that party officials would descend on him, a la Nixon, and say you resign or we're going to withdraw our support for you, is impossible to imagine. So his resignation would be the only pathway out of that office, in my view. All right. So, MBD, what was your percentage on Kamala Harris, by the way? It's just, it's just whatever, whatever the insurance company would put on Joe Biden living. <laughs> okay. Percentage. No, there's, so we got to call our friends in the insurance industry. Feel free to write us. Uh, um, anyone from the insurance in- industry who's listening, but we have a, uh, an insurance industry actuarial table answer from MDD plus an open convention. We got an eighty-five percent and a resignation from Noah Charlie. I think that there is no chance that Joe Biden can complete a second term. It's possible, of course, he would die. But he doesn't need to die for it to become obvious that he can't be president anymore. I frankly think we're approaching that point already. So you're like 100? Yeah. Wow. In terms of how it would happen, I think the 25th Amendment would be the most disastrous course for the Democrats. 
That's not to say at some point it wouldn't become necessary. But if they were to get rid of him before the election via the 25th Amendment, it would, in a perverse sense, play into Trump's hands because he would say, look, see, they play games. They mm-hmm. maneuver. Mm-hmm. They have a plan. It would look like a conspiracy. I think Biden would have to know that he's not going to make it and step aside. Mm-hmm. And then it would have to go probably to a convention at this late stage. There's enough time if he did it tomorrow for the primary process to work, but he's not going to do it tomorrow. So I think it would have to be a convention. Sorry, Rich, there's some confusion in my end as to whether this is before the election or after the election. So the Kamala Harris becoming president after the election, obviously, and and this Biden um, stepping stepping aside or getting forced aside is before the election. Oh, oh does that okay. change in that sense? Does that yeah, change your? Yeah. All right. So I, I'm I, I'm glad you didn't change because I'm basically with you. I, I I'm with Charlie on the number. Maybe I wouldn't fall short of a hundred. You know, say ninety five percent chance Kamala Harris will be president if he's elected again. And I think the twenty fifth amendment would be a, a disaster. Um, it's it's a coup. It's a kind of constitutional coup. It's an incredibly convoluted process. You'd be admitting that this guy is totally in, incompetent and and you've been sh- shilling for him irresponsibly for a long time. He, he wouldn't be willing. I, it would just be a debacle. And then after that, you go to your open convention, which I, I also, there's a chance it would be invigorating, but there's a, there's a chance it wouldn't be invigorating. And even if it was invigorating, you're, you're selecting someone who ha- hasn't, hasn't got one vote of an actual voter. So I think it's a legitimate process, you know, but it, there, there'd be legitimate legitimacy issues uh, around it and just risk it bounce the wrong the, the wrong way. So I think the, the cleanest way for this to happen, I don't think it's going to happen. I think because of these difficulties with the methods, plus Biden's state of mind, it's just not, it's not going to happen. But the cleanest way would be for him to resign the presidency and let Kamala Harris ascend now. Um, then she's president of the United States. She's an incumbent. She has some uh, advantages of, of incumbency. Uh, there's no doubt that she's uh, the nominee and you, you're not um, skipping over a, an African-American woman, but there, there's no way. There's no way that's going to happen, but I think that would be the cleanest and best way if it were. With that, let's pause and hear from our second sponsor this episode. As listeners of National Review Podcast, you already have all the riveting political commentary news analysis you need, but good news. There's a new podcast featuring author, commentator, and our old friend Kevin Williamson offering a fresh perspective on something we all do, work to make a living. That's right. Kevin has teamed up with the Competitive Enterprise Institute to make a new show called How the World Works. And instead of trying to unravel the mysteries of the universe, it's a look at how the world, well, actually works. Each episode, Kevin has an intimate conversation with a notable guest where they discuss the jobs they've had, why work matters, the role of work in our economy and social lives, and policy ideas for helping workers. After all, work involves a lot more than hours put in and paychecks cash. So be sure to listen to How the World Works wherever you listen to podcasts or visit cei.org slash podcast to find the latest episodes of the show, cei.org slash podcast. So no, we got a lot of Russia-related news. We had this interview drop late last week, much touted, much anticipated and or feared. Uh, Tucker Carlson did with Vladimir Putin for about two hours. I must confess, since the last ep, I still have not listened to this interview, but I have seen some of the clips and uh, Vladimir Putin, among other things, engaged in long uh, disquisitions explaining his stilted revisionist view of Russian history and how basically uh, all of it was uh, was uh, building to this moment where Russia would take back it's rightful ownership of Ukraine. What'd you make of it? So I watched the whole thing, and I don't blame you for skipping it. It was an ordeal. Um, and I wrote about 2,000 words on it before I had to just quit, because you could just go on and on and on. I focused primarily on, as you said, this revisionist history that Putin laid out. Um, and I had to go back into my academic work to, you know, because this is the, the czarist period Russian history, I didn't find much to disagree with. But it was when we got into World War I that we started to see what I recognized as a Bolshevik orthodoxy creeping in 
to his comments and, and, and in his remarks too, where he described uh, Moscow's new capitalist posture as being bourgeois, uh, as the defense industry in America as being the primary reason why we have conflict between Russia and the United States, sort of a vulgar Marxist idea of excessive production capacities, referring to Judaism as a nationality, harkening back to the internal passports that the Soviet Union used. A lot of Soviet um, orthodoxy in those remarks. And um, you saw them in his idea of how history unfolded. Uh, the idea that uh, Ukrainianization, as he de re uh, described it, was a construct of the Austro-Hungarian um, armed forces and a weapon of war for export. The notion that he defended the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact without calling it that, uh, in part because the Soviet Union participated in it, the subsumation of the Baltic states and half of Poland into, into um, the Soviet Union and the Nazi invasion of Poland was facilitated by that. And indeed, that was a uh, prelude to the Holocaust in Poland. So it's not something you should really run out in defense of. But he did so in order to justify his claims on Western Ukrainian territory, described Western Ukrainians as having this ethnic Hungarian population that longs to be re reunited with the motherland in some sort of Habsburgian compact, at which point Tucker Carlson allowed himself a sideward glance at the camera, broke the fourth wall and kind of smirked at us, um, which I found revealing. And a lot of nonsense about NATO and the the map, the membership action plan uh, to which uh, it was, uh, it and Georgia were uh, engaged in, in 2005 after the Orange Revolution in Ukraine. He said that it was, you know, he was forced to act after 2008 uh, in Bucharest because there was a meeting in Bucharest where there was this open door policy torn to NATO. Demonstrably false, 100% false. The map program began in 2005. In Bucharest, NATO officials essentially closed that door, saying that Ukraine and Georgia had not met these conditions, were not likely to meet them in the future, and that ascension, accession to NATO was simply aspirational at that point, maybe someday in the, in the near future. Moscow heard that loud and clear because they invaded Georgia in 2008, just a few months later, seeing that the pathway was clear for uh, aggression in the near abroad. It could go on and on and on. But it's demonstrable of Vladimir Putin's uh, instrumentalist view of history. I don't, some of this is probably sincerely held. Some of it is delusion. A lot of it is duplicity. It's hard to tell where one ends and the other begins because it's all in service to one goal, which is laying out the historical justification for aggression, not just in Ukraine, but in the former Soviet possessions and indeed in the former Warsaw Pact states. That is the logic for that kind of aggression laid bare and we ignore it or you know, discount it at our own risk. So Charlie, what do you think about this interview? There's obviously a lot, a lot of controversy around it. <clears throat> My view is that it's a good thing to to go and learn more about Vladimir state and, uh, Putin's state of mind. You know, we learn things from this interview. It was important that uh, a benchmark for Tucker to press for the release of this kidnapped, basically, Wall Street Journal reporter. He did do that at the end of this interview, but there is a lot of... Uh, from the right uh, commentary on this that wasn't particularly worthy. You had a lot of people, wow, Putin's so impressive. Look what a great president they have. He can sit there and, and talk intelligently for two hours, and, and our president is a, is a total mud puddle. And then you had Tucker going out and talking about the interview afterwards at a conference and saying Moscow is, uh, is a more, more splendid and, and comfortable and, and better city than any, any city in the United States. The two points you just made, I agree with, and they're why I sit in some sense on both sides of this question. On the one hand, I think the argument that is, it is per se illegitimate or suspicious for an American journalist to interview someone such as Vladimir Putin is wrong. On the other hand, I wish the journalist who had interviewed Vladimir Putin didn't seem to like him and Russia so much. And I don't think that it is red baiting, although I understand Russia is no longer Soviet, to say that. Tucker Carlson does have a history of saying Russophilic things. He said prior to the invasion of Ukraine that he was supporting Putin and hoped he won. He backed yeah. off that. I think, he said it, I think he said it twice and said the first time he was joking. I don't know about the second time. But well, yeah. look, here's the thing. I don't believe that. But even if he was, it's just not the sort of thing 
you would say, or I would say, it's, it wouldn't come out of our mouth. It's a mm -hmm. strange thing to say. And I think it betrays a certain attitude that he has toward Russia that we saw again this week in his preposterous contention, contention I just wrote about, that Moscow is greater than any city in America. He didn't even say, good Lord, look at the state of Chicago, Moscow's nicer, which is wrong, by the way. But any city in the United States. So I am not bothered by the idea of journalists interviewing tyrants. I just wish those journalists knew uh, that the people they're interviewing were tyrants. And Vladimir Putin is a tyrant. When you look at what he said, Noah is exactly right. I don't have quite the background knowledge that Noah has to be able to parse every last statement that Putin made about the history of the world. But plucky little rural unsophisticate that I am, when somebody says that Poland forced Hitler to invade it, my ears prick up a little bit. <laughs> the guy's a tyrant. I, I, I cannot fathom this weird little two online based corner on the right to which Tucker is a hero that seems to like him and his project and his ghastly country. I don't understand it. And I do think some of it came through in the interview, I'm afraid, and it's come through in his subsequent statements. And that bothers me. So yeah, it was a public service in the sense that he got Putin to say those things that we saw a not unfiltered, but partially unfiltered account of where a world leader who has great influence is coming from. But would I have felt more comfortable if it had been you interviewing him, Rich? Yeah, I would, because I wouldn't have left the interview wondering if after that they went and had drinks together. MBD. Um, so first thing first, you know, there was, um, before the interview even aired, <clears throat> I want to defend uh, Tucker a little bit as a f friend. There's a lot of speculation, like, he shouldn't do the interview because unless he mentions the Wall Street Journal, uh, journalist Evan Gershkovich, I knew he would mention Evan Gershkovich, and anyone who knows Tucker would know he would have brought it up, and even brought it up forcefully, and I knew this partly, you know, not because I talked to him about it, but because... 20 years ago, he wrote his most famous uh, print piece for Esquire about Al Sharpton going to Liberia to try to negotiate peace and getting even like a partial blessing from a completely baffled Colin Powell in his efforts to do this, with, along with like Cornell West and others. And so he was per he's perfectly familiar with this like idea of the improbable um, American celebrity going over and 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 getting something done with uh, a tyrant um so I'm, I'm glad that you know he he showed up his uh preemptive critics on that uh, as for the interview itself i mean it confirmed a lot of what you know i seem to know about putin before and and other reporting about him like so for instance before the the um this latest phase of the war began in 2022. There's all sorts of reports that like Putin was on the phone with Emmanuel Macron for, for hours at a time, just jabbering about history. <laughs> it's like, we saw that obsessive uh, aspect uh, in front of him. And like, it tells you something it's, it is interesting, you know, like, I, you know, if I were narrating, you know, what Russia's interests and grievances are, I would have begun in 1991, you know, in this area. And he's beginning in the ninth century. Um, and that, that absolutely tells you something about his mindset that is uh, a little bit frightening. That there's a kind of obsessive uh, aspect to it that is um, psychological. There's also... You know, Noah pointed out the kind of Soviet orthodoxy in his um, answers, and that that uh, comes across really well. I mean, um, I read a book last year, a biography of Putin by Philip Short, which I highly recommend. Um, and when you read the details of Putin's education, both in law school and and his schooling, 
it actually is shocking how shallow education could be in the Soviet Union, how how um, philosophically um, yeah, shallow and, and depthless uh, their, their view of the law could be um, compared to what you would get in America where you, where you would actually engage students in like real questions of morality and law. Um, something was missing in the Soviet system that at least as uh, Putin went through it, and um, so, yeah, it was interesting. I don't agree necessarily with uh, Noah. I don't think he laid out a predicate for, for um, you know, watering his horses in the Elbe again. Um, you know, he, he, he did say very clearly he has no interest in Poland, um, except for this massive historical grudge. Um, but that, you know, a war with NATO would risk the the life of humanity as a whole. And I do think where we agree is that um, in this liminal period where you've announced that countries like Georgia and Ukraine will someday be in NATO, but you leave that someday far out in the future, it, it just invites actors to take extraordinary action to prevent that outcome. And an outcome that would have been horrible for, um, you know, Russia's security, to be honest. And, um, you know, he took that outcome. He took that opportunity just as, you know, when, when people cast the Brexit vote in 2016, but Brexit can't be affected until 2021, you saw people try to take extra constitutional action to suborn the Supreme Court. You know, people always act in these in these liminal spaces if you give them the chance to do so. And Russia Russia's done that here. Um, well, let me and, say on that, we completely agree that <clears throat> the fact that NATO pulled the rug out from Georgia and Ukraine in Bucharest in 2008 did establish the predicate upon which Moscow acted, created the liminal space that you're describing. If it had not been so ambiguous, perhaps Moscow would have thought twice. Yeah, I, th- I, basically, I basically think there's... Um, I basically think the prom- promises like that should not be... Um, made public until they're until they're imminent, until it's until it can be uh, uh, applied imminently. I mean, this is like the basis of my study of like the Home Rule crisis in 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 Britain is this idea of like, oh, you're going to have this outcome three years later. Well, you give you know militant parties three years then on the clock to try to undermine it extra constitutionally, which is what happened, you know. And so the same thing here is exactly what happened. But I also think, you know, <clears throat> we are seeing, a, we saw a leader who um, in some ways understands his, like, his subordinate role in the world. Um, you know, the way he talked about the relationship between Russia and China, I thought was very telling. Um, you know, his sort of comfort being a junior partner in that um, enterprise was really interesting uh, and disturbing. And, um, you know, I thought I had detected, you know, not to psychologize too much from afar, um, but I I thought I detected a leader who feels he does not get respect on the world stage that he deserves and, um, and is sore about it. Um, So it was, it was not a flattering portrait of Putin at all in the end. Um, And I don't, I don't think it, um, I, I don't. I think Tucker actually did a pretty good job of letting him expose himself in a way that was not flattering. So, next question to you, Charlie. Let's go to Trump's comment that got a lot of uh, generated a lot of comment, where he said that he was talking to some European leader. He said NATO would have been gone bust without him browbeating Europeans into spending more on defense. He referred to a unnamed leader of a big country, probably Angela Merkel, and said that when this leader asked, you know, if we don't pay up or what's going to happen, you know, will you defend us? He says, no, I wouldn't defend you. And I'd tell Russia just to do whatever the hell they want to you. And uh, people obviously uh, worry that this shows a, uh, an attitude towards NATO that you would not ex- expect from, from a former U.S. president and someone who very well might be president Again, so how outraged were you by Trump's, let's say outraged slash alarmed by Trump's comment? Were you zero, 
no big deal. Just Trump telling an anecdote to get people going from the stage. Ten, this shows he, he could pull us out of NATO or do something similar, catastrophic if he's elected again. Well, I think I'm about a seven in that I don't think he's going to pull us out of NATO or do something catastrophic. What I do think is that he has provided us with yet another example of how you cannot apply lessons learned in the New York real estate world to geopolitics. Back when he was praising the dictator in North Korea, I said that this is how you get along when you're trying to build skyscrapers. You say how wonderful everyone is in the hope that you can butter them up and get them to sell you their property or give you a good deal on concrete. You can't do that when you're talking about Kim Jong-un. I think something similar is happening here. I think Trump has an objective here. He seems genuinely outraged that the various members of NATO aren't paying their way. Some of that's true. Some of it is part of his long-held conception that at every given point, America is getting screwed. But I think he thinks it. And I think he thinks that the way to change it is to say things such as this, to put pressure on those countries, make them feel as if they are alone. That's not a good way of treating NATO, though. I know that there is some truth to the critique, but NATO relies upon the conception in the world that it is united and reliable, that if Michael is wrong, and Putin does, in fact, at some point, display an interest in Poland, if Poland as it did to Hitler, apparently forces Putin to invade, that NATO's rules will be invoked in three seconds flat, irrespective of what differences there are between the members. So in that regard, this alarms me a great deal. I don't think, though, that there is much chance of Donald Trump following through with it, because I think it is a negotiating technique. I also think Trump is very lazy as a man and was as a president, and is not going to want to preside over the collapse of the one institution that has kept the world safe. But yeah, it, it alarms me. I'm not going to wake up in the middle of the night sweating about it, but it does alarm me. I wish he wouldn't do it. And I think the fact that he is going to be the nominee for the Republican Party is a disgrace. No, I have a seven on the board. I'm going to say eight um, <clears throat> for a couple of reasons. It was illustrative of Donald Trump's two misconceptions that he applies to NATO. One, he seems to see it as some sort of a protection racket, uh, which it's not. And two, that he thinks, and, and a lot of Republicans have reinforced in him the idea that his force of personality contributed entirely to uh, the increased defense spending among European partners. Uh, European alliance partners have been increasing their defense spending every year since 2014. What happened in 2014? Russia invaded Ukraine. That's what nations do. Nations do not commit themselves to profound change courses of action that change the social compact as increased defense spending does in, in Europe um, because if somebody talks them into it. The threat environment changes. Why did South uh, Africa give up its nuclear weapons? Why did Brazil and Argentina give up their nuclear weapons programs? Because their threat environments changed. The regime characters changed and their threat environments changed. That's how nations change course. Vladimir Putin might be a sober actor or might be a rational actor, but it's not entirely clear he's sober. He's very risk tolerant. He, he makes high bets, big bets. And in giving him the idea that it's worth testing the tensile strength of the alliance is a dangerous proposition because he might take you up on it. The idea that um, Donald Trump's defenders are obsessed with is this notion that you'll have a full the gap style massive Russian invasion that subsumes Poland back into, or Poland and the Warsaw Pact states back into the, into the Russian sphere. And that's unrealistic. And they're right to say it's unrealistic. What is realistic is the prospect of something like what happened in Estonia in 2014, where Russian forces invaded across the border, used radar technology to jam tech, jam communications, smoke screens to hide their advance, captured a soldier, took him back to Moscow and put him on trial. It's a test. It would be a test of the alliance to say, you know, die for, would you die for Danzig? Would you, would you risk a thermonuclear exchange for Tallinn? And the alliance says, well, maybe we don't. At which point Article 5 is moot. The alliance structure collapses. And Vladimir Putin achieves a grand strategic objective that Russia has maintained since 1945 without firing much of a shot. That's the real threat. And any demonstration that the alliances may be a little bit weak because prima inter Paris, the United States, 
isn't totally sold on its mutual defense commitments uh, is a dangerous thing to telegraph to Moscow. MD, seven and eight. Over to you. I mean, two? I mean, it's just like Trump says stuff, you know? He says, like, hey, maybe let's delay the election in 2020. Like, it, and we had a podcast about that and freaked out for half an hour or whatever. And then, like, nothing came of, came of it. Only because Charlie's pauses. I padded that one out to half. I don't think no. I freaked out for half an hour when he said that. I said, well, I as I've I'm said here, saying, that he I'm shouldn't saying, be saying it, that it is bad for the body politic. In the case of NATO, it's bad for the world body politic. In the case of his election comments, they were bad for the American body politic. I can't remember having freaked out. I don't even know what that would sound like. Well, I'm just saying, we, we you know, we... I, I don't think he meant you. I, I, mean, I brought up your pauses. I, I, MBD didn't name you. But well, it, who in freaked general, out we, about it? In general, we were concerned about it. Let's just say that. We were concerned, we were concerned about it for... Critical, like, critical. Like, and, like, it's an example I pick up because, like, almost everyone has forgotten about it. And at some point, like, I don't know. Like Michael, after the election, he tried to stay in power illegally. This is not everyone has forgotten about it. Oh, look at that wacky Trump again. No, no. Everyone that was a signal to the public of what he was likely to at least say, which he then did by trying to prevail upon Mike Pence to rewrite the Constitution so that he could stay in power having lost an election. Yeah. yeah Hand-waving. No, no one else would have said it. And, and having said it went to a state of mind that ended up having a practical effect, right? Sometimes he has practical effects, but sometimes this is just, he just says stuff. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, Me too. you know, like, do we think he's going to be dictator for a day on, if he's reelected day one? Like, I, I mean, like on some level, like I just, I am that is true. Like just, it's not, I'm not saying the standard for statesmanship should be lowered. I'm just saying I've become accustomed to Trump and, and his low standards for himself. I think in a domestic context, that's that's absolutely right. We've all been trained how to interpret what Trump says, but I don't think that's true abroad. Back to the NATO funding thing, a lot of people give John Trump credit for just incepting in the minds of European leaders the idea they should spend more in defense. What his administration was doing was confronting Russia aggressively on multiple fronts and demonstrating in talks with their counterparts in Europe that you need to contribute to this mission too. We're all in this together. Donald Trump was obsequious towards Putin, but his administration wasn't. And that's no, why well, and that's the other went thing. along. Well, that's the other thing is that like... You but know, I just don't think that would happen in term two. I don't know. I mean, NATO expanded under Trump one, right? Twice, For like yeah, um, twice. an anti-NATO guy, you know, we all sleep soundly at night knowing that when Russia fires a hundred thermonuclear weapons at the Western Alliance, that North Macedonia is going to stand up and destroy them and avenge us in blood and tears, no matter what it costs them. I mean, like, give me a break. Um, this is... I have no idea what Trump's going to be like in his second policy because I have no idea who he's going to hire and how they're going to undermine him. I just know that that dynamic <laughs> is going to happen. Now, on, on, on NATO, this has been a constant complaint since Dwight Eisenhower said that Europe was close to, quote, making a sucker out of Uncle Sam. You know, the, if, you, if you look at the uh, alliance structure... Since World War II, the United States has been 39% or 36% of allied GDP. We spend more than 61% of allied defense spending. Like, our allies free ride on us, right? Like, Europe is this elderly welfare queen that we have, and we keep her in this, like, nice, like, appointed apartment, and she can obsess about, like, Nietzsche or, or you know, occasionally endure an Islamic terrorist attack of her choosing, and, you know, it's nice. It's a nice thing that we've done for these people. But for like us. What? We've done for, it for uh, us. I mean, keep the Germans down had a good pedigree. Right. Well, the idea is like <laughs> we decided that you know, like Europe needed to be retired from the field of history. Right. So we we split the continent up with the so with Uncle Joe. Right. We said, no, oh, you know what? Let's not free Poland after all, after these five years. Let's just throw it to the Soviets. We'll split this continent up. When the Soviets finally choked on it, we kind of moved further in. They're still basically retired, you know? And so, I, you know, what do we make of it? Is, is it worth it to spend 61% to, 
should should they are we happy that that's the the arrangement that they pay so little for the collective security or you know is that worth it to us michael if donald trump had solely said that he thinks that nato countries should pay more for their own defense that they're not meeting their obligations that the balance of power is unjust that the united states even has been played for a fool. We would not be having this conversation on this podcast. The reason we're having this conversation is because he said that he would encourage tyrannical nations to invade them. (laughs) That's the part of this that cannot be waved away or abstracted away. Now, does that mean he will actually do it? Probably not. Is it an utter disgrace worth discussing that he said it? Yes, it is. Did he really say it though? Like, is he telling the truth yeah, about so, what he so, said? So, so well, it doesn't matter whether he actually said it to the person he probably made up a conversation with. He wanted to convey that to the public. Yeah. So I'm going to come in with a seven where, where Charlie is. The, the conversation did not happen. You know, it, it was supposedly with Angela Merkel. I, I, uh, I have a friend who was in meetings with Trump and Angela Merkel and said he never saw a, another foreign leader talk as harshly to, to, to another leader as Trump did to Merkel. But this this did not come up. So he he's making it up. And it goes to, you know, as MBD, Trump says things. And, and some things he says is, is just saying things. Some things he says actually have, you know, a practical uh, effect and can have a positive effect. Effect. We saw it with the Northern Triangle countries when he was trying to browbeat them into doing these asylum, safe third country agreements. He was going to cut off aid, and there was this freak out. Oh my gosh! You know these 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 countries are so dependent on this aid; they're going to collapse into you know total economic black hole, and migration is going to grow. And then they they did what Trump wanted, and and he said you know. Uh, never cut off the aid. But then there are things as Charlie, you know, the example of suspending the election. And I think that this is, is more in that class where it shows his instinct, his reflex. Would he do it? Would he actually dump us out of NATO? I kind of doubt it, but I, I think there that tendency is there. Serious people are worried about it. You know, John Bolton is is very concerned about it. And, you know, maybe <clears throat> I, I take MBD's point. We've always uh, wanted Europe to, to spend more but just alliances are, are such a strategic benefit to you. And we're not going to like it if NATO no longer exists and all these countries go the other way. And, you know, you, this, is, this is an ongoing debate for centuries in kind of uh, Anglo-America, how much you care about the, the continent or, you know, do, do you just focus on the periphery and, and worry about, you know, in the British context, your, your colonies, or do you, do you uh, and, and, and hope the continent sorts itself out? Or are you really concerned about <coughs> the continent because it's a major source of uh, uh, power and, and wealth and geopolitical might such that you, you want to make sure there's no uh, hegemon and there's basically peace and stability. I think it's the the latter. It doesn't mean NATO's perfect or the balance of spending is is perfect, but it's a it's a really important alliance that, in my view, at least has has proved the test of time. With that, Charlie. Speaking can, of can, things, can you apologize to Charlie for a sec. Charlie, I am sorry. I, like I'm and, and Rich too. If sometimes I sound flippant, but sometimes when I'm you know you when you lay out a a Trump quote for me and and say like have a substantive reaction or whatever. It, it feels like you're pointing to the circus floor after the show and saying like, find the peanuts among what the elephants left here. And it's just sort of like, I, yeah, I'm going to make a disgusted face. No, no apologies necessary. No, 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 no apologies necessary. It's it a great, com- great conversation. Great discussion with that. Let's go for our, to our third sponsor this episode, Charlie, tell us something about Moink. Well, I was just in California and people ask about the podcast when they recognize you. And one of the routine questions that I got was, is Moink as good as you say? And I say, yes, it is. We've subscribed to it in my household for, I don't know, three, four years, whenever Moink first came on the scene. And that's because Moink is better. 60% of U.S. pork production comes from one company owned by the Chinese, and their hogs are given something called ractopamine, which is banned in 160 countries, including China. Yet you find it in your grocery aisle every day. But there is a better way. I would like once again to tell you about Moink, which delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb-pastured pork and chicken and sustainable wild-caught Alaskan salmon straight to your door. Moink farmers farm like our grandparents did. 
And as a result, moink meat tastes like it should because the family farm does it better. The moink difference is a difference you can taste and you can feel good knowing you're helping family farms stay financially independent too. How it works, you choose the meats delivered in every box, like ribeyes, chicken breasts, pork chops, salmon fillets, and more. Plus, you can cancel any time, but you won't want to. I never have. We've been a subscriber from the start. Never missed a box. Shark Tank host Kevin O'Leary called Moink's bacon the best bacon he's ever tasted. My six-year-old agrees. And Ring Doorbell founder Jamie Simonoff jumped at the chance to invest in Moink. So if you too want to get involved with Moink and keep American farming going, you can sign up at moinkbox.com slash editors right now. And if you do, you will get free bacon for a year. That's one year of the best bacon you'll ever taste for a limited time only. That's M-O-I-N-K box.com slash editors, moinkbox.com slash editors. All right. So we sort of blew it out with the the Trump NATO exit question. So let's go exit question for our third segment here and try to keep it pretty brief because we're up against the time constraint. Go to you first, Noah. Joe Biden's policy on Israel now at the infamous presser last week. He said Israel's campaign in Gaza has been way over the top. So his uh, new posture here, pushing for a ceasefire and all the rest of it, is either, you know, okay, it's jawboning, legitimate humanitarian concerns, you know, playing a little bit to Arab uh, public opinion or the opinion of Arab leaders, which matters to us and, and, uh, um, you know, kind of of predictable and sort of typical U.S. approach where you end up pulling the reins on, on Israel. So, you know, okay, not great or terrible. It's dangerous and disgraceful. Uh, somewhere between not great and terrible, um, as you say, and I'll freely concede that Joe Biden has a balancing act to do here with regard to the Arab states whose populations are not nearly as keen on maintaining relations with Israel as those regimes are. He's also doing it in deference to what he believes is a real political detriment on his side because the coalition that he maintains has a lot of elements in it that just hate Israel, that are very hostile to Israel and to the United States to a lesser degree. Um, but it's pretty terrible um, what he's According to what we were hearing from NBC News, he's just done with it. He's just done with this conflict. He doesn't want uh, Israel to complete its mission. And he illustrated, he'd said at that press conference, a disastrous press conference, and has subsequently repeated it alongside King Abdullah of Jordan, that he hopes to um, engineer a ceasefire for the exchange of hostages, that he would draw out into a much longer period of time and present Israel with facts on the ground that the war's over. You just can't continue it. Thereby making Israel's cooperation almost impossible to imagine. He's just giving up the game and saying, Israel, you can't, you can't pursue this objective. Also, they're making impossible conditions on Israel by saying, listen, this, this uh, incursion into Rafah can't occur unless the civilian population is taken care of, but also no displacement of the civilian population. These two objectives are in conflict. So he's presenting Israel with a set of conditions they cannot accept, perhaps knowing that they cannot accept them, which will diminish his influence over Israel, and Israel will go it alone because the 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 entire population inside and outside Bibi's coalition is behind this war, and the objective of the war is to destroy Hamas, and they will do that, whether Joe Biden likes it or not. I would think he would prefer to be on the inside of that tent than outside of it, but he seems to have a different opinion. MBD. Yeah, I mean, I think Joe Biden's strategy uh, with Israel after October seventh initially was to publicly absolutely bear hug Israel uh, and, but privately to try to control as much as he could um, the conflict and try to, you know, uh, dissuade Israel from, from using all the means that they've, they've used to go after Hamas. Um, But now I think just the pressure on the psychological pressure on younger staffers, knowing that educated progressives um, support Hamas now instead of Israel is becoming unbearable and he w- wishes for the whole thing to be over. Um, and so now that's why you're getting these uh, half-baked and poorly thought out and totally undiplomatic expressions like the one you saw in that press conference where he said Israel's response has been over the top. Um, you know, that is, that's him hearing this this nonsense opinion that you get from Europe about genocide Joe or what, you know, whatever, uh, because the U S supports Israel and it's, um, 
It's a reaction that's beneath him and it's beneath the dignity of the United States too. Charlie, not so great or terrible? I think it's not so great. It's a good example of Joe Biden not being in charge or at least not being with it enough to withstand the pressure of the progressive blob that really is running the White House. This reminds me in some sense of student loans. It was clearly absurd for Joe Biden to do what he did. It was illegal. It was destined to be struck down. It was unpopular and divisive. People in his own White House, the reporting showed, begged him not to do it. But he was surrounded by progressive staffers who wanted their student loans forgiven. And they went on and on and on and on about it. And I think the same thing has happened here. This is not a popular position Joe Biden is taking. It's not a morally sound position he's taking. But it is the position that is held by the people to whom he's closest and upon whom he relies. And so he has absorbed it as if by osmosis. And it's now coming to the fore. So I'm with Noah <clears throat> once again on this app. I think it's somewhere between not so great and terrible, leaning towards terrible. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, you've been listening to the Lemon Twigs. Yeah, just um, I don't know how it came across my um, listening in Spotify or, or on YouTube, but there's this great little band, the Lemon Twigs. Um, they're really young, um, but the, I guess they're on their second album now. And, um, they're just really fantastic. They really were like harken back to the 1960s sounds of like beach boys and the birds and, um, and, uh, just real pop magic songwriting. So check, uh, check out, um, my golden years is the, the single that I think, um, gets at why they're so great. So Noah, one word, I don't know, maybe there's a two words, one word hyphenated. Snow tubing. Might be hyphenated. I don't know. Uh, this might surprise you, but I don't do a lot of winter sports. Uh, no. Contrary, contrary to, to the, you know, the image I've cultivated. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it took the, the, the whole neighborhood got together and went to an actual ski uh, resort, which I'd never been think? to. You're so engaged with your neighbors. I'm so jealous. It's, it's really lovely. I'm trying to make you jealous because it is that great. <laughs> um, but this is not my environment, so I just kind of struggled through you it. Should, but yeah, you should write a big magazine to... piece about neighbors. I, w- I'm a, I would be interested I mean, in doing that. I might that, trade one of our process. <laughs> yeah, I'd have to ask everybody permission on background. Um, but yeah, so I went to this to the ski resort for the first time ever and a really lovely environment. I had a great time drinking beer um, at one of the uh, craft beer carts. But yeah, I went down the tu- in the the hill in the tube a couple of times. It was 60 degrees outside, so it was super muddy. Everybody got covered in mud, but it was nevertheless a fun time. And I can kind of see why people enjoy that sort of thing. Charlie, you were recently in California and have concluded once again you like it, even though it's run by terrible people. Oh, it's just fabulous. If any other state had the politics of California, it would empty out. If Iowa had the politics of California, there would be no one left. But California can, to some extent, get away with it because it's just so beautiful. The weather is nice. It wasn't when I was there because they're in the middle of massive rains. But notwithstanding the rain, the hills, the palm trees, the food, it's just a, it's just a wonderful place. You know, I was asked when the Scottish had their referendum on leaving the United Kingdom, whether or not I was in favor of it. And I said, absolutely not. I can criticize Scotland all day, happily, especially politically. But I don't want Scotland not to be in the United Kingdom. It's part of the United Kingdom. I just feel the same about California. We complain about it. We use it as a pejorative. But when you go there, you remember that current affairs aside, what a place. So I went to a Rangers game, thanks to the incredible generosity of our devoted listener, Alec. I do not like the Rangers. I do not like Rangers fans, except for Alec, who is a Rangers fan. But I have to give uh, Rangers fans credit for the the sheer intensity and the high level of knowledge they bring to their fandom. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. MBD, what's your pick? Um, my pick is Madeline Kearns' piece on our aging monarchs. 
um, she just brings up this uh, in in relation to Joe Biden and Donald Trump, but also recently Queen Elizabeth and Pope Francis and others about um, <clears throat> this problem we now have where, you know, our leaders don't die in their 60s from organ failures and heart attacks, but live into uh, many years sometimes into uh, mental decline, senility, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. Uh, and our institutions aren't really dealing with it. And the individuals themselves aren't really facing the truth. And um, I just think it's a it's a massive problem that, um, strangely, of all institutions, only the Catholic Church has tried to innovate uh, a way out of this problem with uh, Pope Benedict's resignation. Um, but everyone else has to face the same issue. And we're facing it now. No, what's your pick? So I don't know if this came up on the Friday podcast. It's from last week. Um, it was Phil Klein's uh, Kamala Harris is now the safer choice for Democrats. Yeah, it's good. I went into that with, with a lot of priors. I was like, nah, come on. No. But uh, he managed to convince me of the idea that uh, not only are, are Joe Biden's deficiencies really debilitating at this point, but Kamala Harris would erase them in ways that would play right into the, to the press's hands. Media would just inject a lot of enthusiasm into this campaign and erase her her deficits and just make make a a caricature of her a, a beneficial caricature of her that she would go to work immediately trying to break down. Um, but for a, for a little bit, like there would be a lot of energy and enthusiasm there, and it would reshape the race. The Kamala, Charlie. My pick is Rich's piece. The last time an unfit incumbent ran for re-election about Franklin Roosevelt. This was discussed earlier in the episode. I have to say I did not know the extent of Roosevelt's ailment, and I didn't know the extent to which people were worried about it. I was aware that some opinion polling from 1944 had showed that Americans were worried about FDR being re-elected because they thought he might be too old, but that this was offset by the Second World War. But I didn't actually know that history, Rich, so I found that fascinating to read. Thank you. So my pick is our editorial, Michael Mann verdict is an assault on the First Amendment. Read it and weep. He won his defamation case against Mark Stein and Rand Simberg. A, a case that, that just shouldn't be happening, and he's threatening to come after us. We were uh, got out of the case, and he's threatening to come out after us again, having said, uh, I think both he and his lawyer both said, they're next, talking about us. So watch this space. That's it for us. You've been listening to a Nashville podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission of Nashville Magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy, who makes it sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to Full Time, How the World Works, and Moink. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.